Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction Podcast number 20, the second installment of the award-winning novel, The Surgeon's Wife, read by the author. Mike Boudreau is the chief of surgery at a New Orleans hospital. Clayton Otherson, an influential surgeon, is making life-threatening mistakes in surgery, and Mike must discipline him. Mike tries to help his friend, but other colleagues demand Clayton stop surgery. Catherine, Clayton's wife, falls in love with Mike, and Clayton becomes obsessed with revenge against Catherine. Mike and Catherine struggle to create a future together, rejected by a disdainful New Orleans society. I'm Bill Coles, your host. So let's get started with installment two of The Surgeon's Wife. Chapter 14 Two weeks after the San Francisco meeting, Angie Picard, the social worker, stopped Mike in the hall between clinics. She had wanted him to see a client he'd remember. Mike followed Angie. She descended the stairs without holding the handrail, her steps controlled and graceful. Angie introduced Mike to an emaciated young woman in her patient chair. She was familiar, but Mike was unsure. Helen? he asked. You operated, uh, Angie began to fill in. Of course I know her, Mike said. He smiled at Helen. Helen tried to stand to greet him, but toppled to one side. She smelled of aluminum and formalin and overripe citrus. She smiled, gums swollen and red. Her eyes sunk into her orbits with eyelids tinted with a faint gray of cobwebs. Mike felt the urgency of her condition. He was already examining her. Her pulse was up. She wheezed on exhale. Her conjunctiva were anemic, her nail beds white and unhealthy. She had almost no muscle mass, and her skin had patches of erythema and desquamation, some actively infected. Look at her snapshots, Angie said. Helen took snapshots from a business envelope and laid them out on her lap. In one, she stood before her parents' house next to a Honda Coupe. That's a couple years ago, she said. She offered a color shot, showing her dressed in a yellow pullover that bulged at the waist and hips and gray shorts that pinched her stuffed thighs and exposed white muscular calves. That was after my recovery, she said. Mike remembered her. Just before surgery, she said. On the next page, she was a gaunt woman standing next to a vibrant live oak. About a month ago, she said. Mike took Helen's medical record from Angie. It was still plain from Clayton's note that at her heaviest, Helen was a borderline case for surgery. His consultation note he had sent to Clayton was not in the chart. Angie had documented Helen's progress since the surgery. After surgery, Helen spent all day in bed except to hobble to a toilet to pass watery stools. Her fever had become chronic. She had required two more surgeries for removal of scar tissue and a third to drain an abscess. Mike motioned for Angie to follow him into the hall. He closed the door. She'll need admission, he said. On your service, Angie asked. Clayton's been taking care of her. She's afraid of Clayton, Angie said. She hasn't been back for months. 
I'm sure she has another abscess, Mike said, and she needs nourishment. She can't eat solid foods, Angie said. She vomits. Mike called a resident for admission. I'll do the case, Mike said. Call Marcel. Have him bring Pamela and get here as soon as they can. Will Helen be all right, Angie asked. I don't think she'll ever be normal again, Mike said. The surgery went well. Mike transferred Helen to medicine and infectious disease for post-op treatment of her infections. Her abscess cultured two resistant organisms that would be hard to cure. Chapter 15 A month later, Mike decided to eat out. When at home, he mostly ate soup, sandwiches, and microwave frozen dinners. But when he had time, he ate at Pierre's, his favorite restaurant in the quarter, and only three blocks from his house. The chef owner was Hubert Jarowski from Chicago. He was flagrantly gay and had world-class potential as a chef. But New Orleans fit his lifestyle, and he loved being with his friends, relatively unhassled by society, and he would deny any ambitions to expand his place or move elsewhere. The restaurant, a converted store, occupied a corner and had two street sides of the dining room with open-air arches crossed with wrought iron railings that were flushed to the sidewalk. Jarowski called his restaurant the Wilted Geranium, but the only place you'd find the name was on top of a single-page menu copied daily on a tabletop hand-cranked copier. The interior was always dark, with walnut-stained oak panels and green-painted wooden tables with dark red tablecloths. Mainly couples, mostly gays, frequented the place. Few heterosexual families were ever seen. No young children, and not many tourists. Pierre didn't advertise. No reservations were accepted, and disappointed, sometimes angry people were turned away nightly. As a regular dinner guest, Mike sat on a stool at the bar where there was enough light to read a book or journals. Behind the bar, above the back shelf stacked with various bottles, was an eight-by-five-foot framed mirror where he could see everything in the restaurant and much of the street. Stephen's getting married, Patron, the bartender said to a customer a few bar stools down. He gay? Hell no, good-looking woman lives in the Fallberg paints. Like houses? No, no, you know, pictures. Mike forced himself not to look, to show interest. It was Rosa, he was sure, and he did not want to let himself admit that he cared or was even curious. When he thought about Rosie, he still missed her. He harbored the ache of failure, a frustration because he really didn't know what he'd done wrong. How could she love another guy? He opened a journal to read, tilting the page to catch the light from behind the bar. He'd almost finished dinner when he saw Marcel Rappaport in the mirror. Marcel walked straight to the bar stool next to him and said, I'd like to kill the son of a bitch, Marcel said, looking straight ahead into the mirror. It's malpractice. Mike chewed a piece of steak. Helen can't walk more than a few feet. She can't eat anything, sips everything through a straw. She sweats and shivers. She's had more surgeries than a movie diva. The drugs make her stomach cramp. She sheds blood, 
and she cries all the time. Mike wiped his mouth with a napkin and pushed his plate away. It will take time, Mike said. Don't bullshit me, man, Marcel said. She's gone from a happy, overweight kid to a skinny corpse. She'll improve, Marcel. She'll never be the same. Patron looked over at Marcel. Keep your voice down. You want something? Marcel shook his head no. I'm going to take this Otherson guy down, Marcel said. He shouldn't be operating. Did you know there's a support group for patients who've had the surgery, like cancer survivors? Mike shook his head. What are you doing here? I need you, Boudreau, and I don't want that fucker to know. I've turned Helen's care over to the internist, Mike said. I'm not an expert in fucked up metabolism. I'm taking them down, no matter. And my lawyer says I need your records, the real ones, not just the ones they hand out. You have to go through proper channels, Marcel. They're required. I only got some of Otherson's records, Marcel said. I saw her for a second opinion before bypass surgery, Mike said. You told the wife not to do it. From the few records we get from Otherson's office, Helen didn't meet any of the indications for surgery. She wasn't old enough. Her BMI thing wasn't right. She was screwed up in the head. All judgment calls, Marcel. Different doctors come to different conclusions. Bad judgment, malpractice, Marcel said. Well, you can request the records. There's a form, Mike said. Medical records will release them. I'll need you to testify, Marcel said, to say what you said to Helen and the ex-wife. You don't need me, Mike said. You signed an informed consent. All the complications are listed there. Did you think we knew what would happen? Are you crazy? But you knew, man. You told her not to do the surgery, Marcel said. I recommended alternative treatment. I'm sick of the double talk. You won't testify for us, we'll subpoena your ass. You don't want a hostile witness. There are other experts. Not with what you know. You owe me, man, Marcel said. You owe Helen. Mike stood and signed his tab, eager to get out, and skipped his usual coffee. It's not malpractice, Marcel, and I don't think you'll ever prove intent either. We'll figure out something. Mike left Marcel sitting at the bar with his head in his hands. He felt for Marcel, and he hurt for Helen. She should not have been operated on. He knew that. But he could not bring himself to join in legal action against a colleague and a friend. Technically, it would be difficult to classify the case as malpractice. It was judgment, mainly, and in parts of the country it would probably meet standards of care. Marcel would get his information. But internal, not public, restrictions were needed. Quiet, definitive actions. Mike would convene the task force early. Two weeks later, the task force met earlier than scheduled. The assistant dean called on Mike to start the meeting. Mike again reviewed complications, and then he presented the case of Helen without identifying her or the surgeon. Clayton was no longer allowed to attend these meetings, members only now, but his presence was pervasive. 
Over the next hour, a set of indications for surgery emerged that was approved and distributed directly to Chairman McLaughlin and surgery for immediate implementation, and that would be presented to the chair's meeting for official approval early next month. Days after the new indications for surgery were approved, a quorum of the OR committee met in the faculty library. Seated around an oval boardroom table were three general surgeons and one surgeon from thoracic orthopedics, ophthalmology, urology, and colon rectal. As chair, Mike again directed the meeting. The question, now, was Clayton's loose indications and the now well-documented complications such as Helen's. I told you, Janet said. As usual, Thoracic couldn't stop talking. He reviewed every detail of Clayton's errors, details that had been provided to every committee member before the meeting. He presented a series of Clayton's complications and then meticulously outlined the options, suspension, probation with monitoring, or termination, but failed to mention no action. Thoracic thought that Clayton could never be rehabilitated. But if Clayton continued obese surgery, he needed to follow guidelines and to document improvement in his laparoscopic technique. No action, Sam, the general surgeon, said. We have to take action, Thoracic said. He's been a solid member of our department for years, Sam said. He's built the best trauma service in the South. He's integrated critical care. He's trained most of us. No action is an option. He almost killed patients, Janet said. His mortality rate is almost 2%. That's close to the national average. And kill is not the right word, Sam said. Oh, please, Janet said. It describes the situation accurately. I can say anything I want. These minutes are discoverable, Sam said. I don't think so, Janet retorted. Urology spoke. A good lawyer can discover anything. Othersen's made mistakes before. If a patient dies and there were no solid indications for the surgery, it's willful death, Janet insisted. Kill is unnecessarily inflammatory, Mike said. Mike leaned over and told the secretary not to include kill in the minutes. Let's move on, Mike said. Passions unrelated to the issue at hand might forge an unfair decision for Clayton. He didn't want to argue word choice too far. A general surgeon spoke. If we take drastic action, Clayton will lose his license over this. It will be known by the state. We could ruin him. We've known this for months. What the hell were we doing, urology asked. They waited for Mike. Action requires facts, investigation and verification, Mike said. You guys stick together like glue, Janet said. Look at his indications. And he hasn't gone for training for laparoscopy either, she looked at Mike. Has he? I made sure he was scheduled, Mike said. I know he signed up. I don't know if he's completed the course yet. This is cover-up management, Boudreaux, Janet said. I'm Clayton's partner too, Sam said. Mike's handled this right. It wasn't that Sam was just supporting a surgical colleague. He didn't like woman docs in the OR, especially orthopedist. Otherson ought to be terminated, Janet said. Has he gone for a refresher course in obese surgery? That wasn't required or suggested. He's nationally recognized in obese surgery, Mike said. Don't confuse the issues. 
The incident report was on an obese patient undergoing bariatric surgery, but the complication was from the laparoscope. You don't use a laparoscope, but it's a technical problem, not related to the procedure. There have been no serious laparoscopic complications, and we are addressing the obese surgery indications and Clayton's compliance. But he wouldn't have been using the laparoscope if he hadn't been doing obese surgery, Janet said. I agree, said oral surgery. The laparoscope is not just used in obese surgery, Sam said. The task force has developed a set of indications based on national state-of-the-art recommendations, Mike said. McLaughlin has supported their use. Address only the indications at this time, not laparoscopy. There's still advertising, Janice said. That's against proper use of indications. You can advertise and still comply with indications, Sam said. Give me a break, Janet said. You advertise to increase your volume. And another way to increase volume is to lower threshold indications. Oh, that's never public. But it's done all the time. It's better for volume than anything else. The task force defined what was appropriate, Mike said. Well, that still doesn't take a dangerous surgeon out of the operating room. Probation with monitoring indications seems severe enough and provides some compassion for past service, Colin Rectal said. Call the question. Motion for six months probation. Operation only under supervision. Preoperative review of indications. Reevaluation at end of probation. So move, Thoracic said. Discussion, Mike asked. The vote went four to four. Mike had the tie-breaking vote. I vote for probation, he said. He knew if he allowed further discussion and a new motion, it could get worse. Record the vote as five to four. I move unanimous vote, Sam said. All in favor? Defeated. And the negatives insisted their objections be recorded as their desire for more severe punishment. By a recorded vote of five to four, Clayton was allowed to operate with supervision as part of the probation. Mike would join other faculty in an official department monitoring schedule of Clayton's cases. All Clayton had to do was not screw up. Mike called Clayton at home immediately. Catherine answered. Probation. He can still operate, Mike said. It could have been worse, Catherine asked. A lot worse, Mike said. Clayton picked up on the extension, and Mike told him the committee's decision. I expected better than that, Michael, Clayton said. Mike had all the requirements of Clayton's probation in place in 24 hours. Clayton did two cases on the following Monday. Mike approved the indications and monitored Clayton's performance through Paul, the anesthesiologist. No problems. At least one other surgeon visited the OR twice during each case, too. Mike arranged with the OR to allow Clayton to schedule only with the most experienced anesthesiologist, and he met with every resident and reviewed protocols for cases going wrong. What the hell is going on? Clayton asked when he and Mike were alone in the doctor's dressing room. Mike pulled on his scrub pants. You're treating me like a child, Clayton said, but at least he seemed resigned to the probation. Everything okay, Clayton, Mike asked. I mean, outside the hospital? 
What's okay? Clayton stared. What in the hell does that mean? Are you having any troubles? Anything at all? I'd like to help in any way I can. Clayton glared at Mike. Strange you should ask that. I'm chair of the operating room committee. That doesn't give you special privileges to pry. I'm not guilty of anything. A week went by and Clayton continued to operate without incident. At least some confidence returned to his walk and his talk. All the docs on the surgery service began to believe that when the OR committee met for further consideration, that Clayton would have a good enough interim record to prove he was no longer dangerous. Chapter 16 Catherine parked in the Omni garage and walked to Rosemary Dayside's studio on Charters. A bell tinkled as she opened the door. Rosemary stood on a plank platform supported by a ladder on each end. She was dressed in jeans and a T-shirt, her hair tied back with a strip of red rag and two streaks of paint on her right cheek. She held a palette and a paintbrush and was working on the upper right-hand corner of an 8-by-12-foot canvas of a downriver scene. Maybe I should come back, Catherine said, holding the door. Rosie looked back over her shoulder. Mrs. Otherson, Catherine, please. Rosie returned to working. Did you see something you like? There is more in the showroom across the courtyard. The door is open. I wanted to talk, Catherine said. I've got an area here to adjust the values before it dries. But it's mindless work, and I can talk just fine. Catherine spoke, unable now to see Rosie's face. It's a pleasant campus. Grandiose, some say, Rosie said. The river has eternal mystery, Catherine said. It deserves a little grandeur. My thinking exactly, Rosie said. Rosie carefully laid a wash to prep what eventually would be the sky. Catherine watched. What's happened to Michael, Catherine asked. We broke up. Rosie glanced at Catherine briefly over her shoulder. Really? Right after the faculty retreat. Is it someone else? I don't think so, Rosie said. I've seen him a couple of times but never asked. And no one in the quarter seemed to know. You two seem so in love, Catherine said. Maybe. But I loved him more than he could love me. That's not a good formula. He must have been devastated, Catherine said. Rosie laughed. Definitely not. But he was surprised. He's a good man, Catherine. He just hasn't fallen in love yet. Do you give lessons? I mean, I'd like to paint. I was an art history major at Newcomb. Almost finished, Rosie said. After two minutes, she gracefully slipped down the four feet from the platform to the floor. She set the palette and brush on the table and wiped her hands on a towel. I want to do quarter scenes, Catherine said. I love the quarter. But living uptown, I don't get down often. I'd like to do architecture, gardens, street corners. Would you like a coffee, Rosie asked. I've got a fairly fresh pot in the back. I'm going to have some. Oh, lay, please, Catherine said. Rosie was visible in the door to the back painting room. 
Catherine talked as Rosie filled styrofoam cups from an aluminum urn with a spigot. I don't teach anymore, Catherine. I don't have the time or the patience. But there's a great private school up on Magazine, near where the whole food is going in. Can I learn about the quarter, Catherine asked. They do a lot of plain air. I've had experience in college, Catherine said. Watercolors, Rosie asked. Oils, mainly. You'll be a natural, Rosie said, and you're welcome to leave your stuff here, and I can give you a key in case I'm not around. You could store your canvases, leave your easel. There is usually parking space in the alley. That would be wonderful, Catherine said. Rosie reached into a drawer and took off a key from a ring with many keys. Here, this is a spare for the door in the alley. Keep it as long as you need. I'd like to pay, Catherine said. Never, Rosie said. Just send me a potential client or two. Chapter 17 Saturday was the first New Orleans Jazz Weekend Festival Day of the season in the quarter. A percentage of profits went to support bone care health systems. The weather was all sparkling reflections, cloudless sky and light breeze, and hot enough to produce a light sweat even when sitting in the shade. Streets were crowded with patrons. Traffic was prohibited on many streets. Bands played on street corner stages, and you could buy anything, all sold from collapsible booths, wagons, satchels, or from handbags or pockets. The main stage was a head-high, covered platform at the edge of Jackson Square. The speeches for donations and self-praise were slotted between the most popular New Orleans-style piano player and the best rock Zydeco band ever to shimmer a speaker with too much volume. Introductions by the mayor began at 11 a.m. Musicians for the next set milled around the edge of the stage. Behind the stage, a backdrop of the cathedral spires jutted into the sky. Speakers and dignitaries sat in a line of chairs at the back of the stage. Clayton, who was to talk on the value of his surgery for obese women and children, sat next to the mayor. Mike stood at the edge of the crowd. He had arranged coverage at the hospital and walked a few blocks from his house to the square. He'd come to see what Clayton would say about obese surgery with the new restrictions. Key members of the school would be interested in how Clayton handled himself. The mayor made introductions and introduced the CEO of Bone Care. The hand tugged at Mike's arm. Catherine looked up at him. Could we move to the side, she asked. Mike followed Catherine to a quieter spot between two flowering bushes where they could still see the stage. Clayton should be up soon, Mike said. He speaks after the chancellor, Catherine said. They were both facing the stage and kept a few inches distance between them. She looked up. Tell me what's going on, Mike. Mike didn't look at her. Clayton's promoting the bariatric service. You know I didn't mean that, she said. Clayton's been difficult to live with. He locks himself in his study. He says he's writing op-eds. He doesn't speak to me. People are upset about the loose indications, Catherine, Mike said. New guidelines have been set. And the case that went bad? 
I think that's over. He was almost tagged as impaired, but I think that was unjust. He's still on probation. Will it hurt him nationally? That's what he worries about. I think we can solve it. The Chancellor was speaking now. He thinks of you as a friend who turned on him, Catherine said. I want him to come through this. He's done a lot for me over the years, Mike said. Mike had not looked at her during the exchange, keeping his eyes on the stage. He tried to concentrate on the Chancellor's words, but they carried little meaning for him. He stretched his arms, locking his hands behind his back. He adjusted his stance, his hands by his sides. He felt Catherine's hand brush against the back of his hand. The Chancellor was describing the historical support given by so many at the festival, noting the fruitful relationship between school and bone care. Mike felt her hand again, prolonged enough for him to feel her warmth. The contact at first gave a sensation of softness, but within a second his mind focused on a pleasant, almost burning tingling. He looked to her, her gaze gripped his, and then she looked quickly away. His heart was beating hard now, but she had moved away a few inches and did not touch him again. Clayton, she said, nodding toward the stage. Mike had been staring unaware. Clayton had moved to the podium. Now Catherine stepped forward to see better. Mike buried his hands in his pockets. He studied the back of Catherine's head, her black hair cascading to her shoulders in gentle waves. Clayton droned on. All old stuff. Clayton had not changed his content for a lay audience. Movement at the side of the stage caught Mike's gaze. Marcel Rappaport wore a dark business suit with a white shirt and tie, and although unshaven, he looked like a participant, or at least an assistant to one of the dignitaries on the stage. He walked slowly and with confidence, and few in the crowd took their eyes off the speaker. Catherine turned her head. Who's that? father of one of Clayton's patients, Mike said. Maybe Marcel would try to speak in protest. There were always demonstrators at these events. Clayton stopped speaking when he saw Marcel. Marcel pulled a pistol from his pocket, aimed at Clayton, and paused. The crowd went silent. Even from a distance, Mike could feel Marcel's indecision. Marcel was not a murderer. He was an angry father who deeply loved his daughter. Could he squeeze the trigger? Marcel raised the weapon and fired a shot into the air over Clayton's head. Two security guards threw Marcel off the stage and dragged him out of view. Everyone talked at once. The mayor went to the microphone to assure the crowd the situation was under control. He urged Clayton to continue, trying to minimize the disruption. Clayton spoke, but his thoughts were jumbled, and few in the audience even tried to listen, still talking. Catherine turned to Mike. I don't know if I can take much more of this, she said. Frightened people were leaving the square. Would something else happen? Chaos increased, but the event was obviously over. Mike took Catherine in his arms for a few seconds and felt her surrender herself to him. The side of her face was on his chest, and he smelled the sweetness of her tears. In seconds, she pulled back and wiped her face. Clayton needs me, she said. Together, Mike and Catherine went toward the stage. 
Clayton had stopped talking, but still stood at the podium. Fear had immobilized him. Catherine ran to Clayton. Mike followed. Are you all right? Catherine said to Clayton. What did he want? Clayton asked. He had not recognized Marcel. Maybe he had never met him. With his attention on Catherine, Clayton was in control again. Catherine and Clayton left the stage together. The square was covered with police, and most of the crowd had moved on. Mike walked slowly back through the quarter to his house. Helen Rappaport had died in her bed in the night, a suspected suicide from an overdose of prescription nerve pills. Her mother found her. Both the police and the press understood the reason for Marcel's action. As expert after expert publicly confirmed, Helen had really died of complications related to her surgery. Over the next two days, public sympathy grew for Marcel. He was charged but was free on bond. Mike ate out alone at Pierre's that night. He took a table away from the street. You don't like a place at the bar anymore, Patron, the bartender said. Uh, feeling a little low, Mike said. Helen had been robbed of a future by a health care system that was tripping over its own feet. Helen was special. She had fought back from substance abuse and sexual assault with determination few would ever match. She had had a good chance of making it all work. She was not a candidate for surgery, a victim of unnecessary tragedy. He should have done something, and he swore to himself it would not happen again because he failed to act. Chapter 18 Five days later, on a still dark morning, Mike heard a knock on his door. He put on jeans and went down to unlock the door. Catherine slept in. She had on jeans and a white shirt spotted with splashes of dried paint and linseed oil. She leaned against the door. She seemed to shrink within herself. He felt her stress, and he hurt for her. My God, Michael, she said, I can't go on alone. Clayton hates me. Melissa ignores me so much she walks the other way when I'm near she loves you, Mike said. She doesn't want to go away to school. I just can't do it anymore. She held her hands to her face, and then she sank to the floor, bending her knees, her back still against the door. She looked deflated, as if her usual essence had been let out. Mike reached for her, but she waved him off. I don't know why I came. It was so stupid. I almost didn't knock. The still air encased her. She stood back up, sliding against the door. I just don't know what to do about Clayton. I can't make it right. He's always thought of me as an investment, a postage stamp to move his career, but not special. And now, with the hospital trouble, he's turned crazy. He seems on the edge of beating up the world. Mike backed away, hesitant now to reach out. She was married to his mentor. It was not right to go against him. He could see her face cloud with disappointment as he held back. Damn it, Michael. I barely have a marriage. She was standing full height now, her back still against the wall. I know you care. She sobbed. 
I've fallen in love with you. In his confusion, he could think of nothing to say. How could he admit his attraction for the wife of his partner? The whole idea of cheating did not sit well with him. His upbringing and his religion spoke against it. But now, with the softness of her voice, her admission of her feelings, a desire to protect her possessed him. He forced himself not to move. I thought you cared, she said. It's so ridiculous. I've never been in love, really. I married Clayton because Mother thought he was a fantastic opportunity for a young girl. I wasn't in love. But I thought you grew to love people. And then, when we were at the beach, I couldn't help my feelings for you. You didn't do anything. You were just there, and I could hardly keep myself from you, like I was magnetized. It was a crazy weekend, Mike said slowly. It seemed so distant now. He was perspiring under his shirt. His pulse raced. She went to an overstuffed chair and sat down. He stood near a sofa across from her in the faint light of pre-dawn. They remained silent for a while. I tried to talk to him, Catherine said. Clayton, I say, I've got to talk to you. He doesn't look up. About us, he almost yells, not now. Does that mean never, I say? It means not now. When? When you're calm. I've never been calmer. It kept on like that, and I shoved one of his precious $8,000 rose medallion vases off a side table. He didn't move, but he looked like he was going to kill me. She wiped away tears with her fist. I'm an afterthought to him, and when he does think of me, I irritate the hell out of him. She stretched her legs out to control her emotions. Mike sat near her on the sofa. What about Melissa, he said. She looked surprised. Melissa doesn't care. Clayton hates her. He demands her to do something. She does exactly the opposite. They scream and curse. She schemes ways to stay away from home when he's there. I don't blame her. Mike paused, finding his words. Clayton did a lot for me when I was in training. It's hard to forget that. Is there a chance you care for me, Catherine said. Mike was tense. He could not reveal his feelings. It's impossible. I don't know what to do, she said. She cried. He could not reach out to her, to touch her. He would lose his resistance. Yes, he did want her. We've got to live our lives as before, he said. We can't make wrong moves that would ruin us. She nodded slightly. Of course, she sobbed. But it won't go away. I don't think it will ever leave me. It must always be secret, he said. Clayton can use it against me and those who want to prevent OR disasters. He'll say he's innocent, and I'm attacking him because of feelings for you. She nodded. I'm beyond logic, Michael. I'm sorry. He was suddenly, uncomfortably so close to her. He stood up. I've got to be in early, he said. I'll get dressed. He went to the bedroom. He took a shower. It was quiet while he was dressing. He didn't call out. When he came out of the bedroom into the living room, she had gone. For the rest of the day, he tried not to think about her. Two mornings later on a Saturday, he was still in bed. He heard a knock on the door. He descended the stairs and opened the door. 
He didn't see her at first, standing back away from the light. She'd been waiting in the rain for some time. Soggy strands of hair kept falling over her face. Her nose was running from the cool air. She wiped her nostrils with a wadded tissue. She took a deep breath, worried that she would look flustered and out of control. She felt for his hand without saying it. She felt his warmth. Oh, Michael. He didn't move, but he still held her hand. He's not faithful, Michael. He doesn't care. She waited. She could feel his indecision. She touched his mouth with the fingers of her free hand. She pushed up the corners, one at a time, for a smile. It can't be wrong, she said. He tried not to, but he smiled. To release himself was to find a joy. His heart pounded. He took her other hand. He gently led her into the house. With infinite care, he treated her with the respect of a priest giving sacrament. She kept her eyes closed. Within minutes, she felt the length of him, and not knowing what the future would bring, she savored the moment of finally being one. Catherine, he said as the sun came up and they were standing at the door. Yes, my sweet? Clayton must never know, he said. She kissed him. No one will ever know. We can do it. Chapter 19 Mike and Catherine met whenever they could, if only for a walk or a few words together. On rare occasions, when they could both get away, they went to a hotel in Bay St. Louis or Gulfport. Mike's happiness with Catherine became addictive. He discovered the woman he loved, and each tidbit of knowledge thrilled him. There was no reason or logic to it. Falling in love with a married mother socialite was never in his mind and would never really be accepted by his own mother. Still, he marveled at the inevitability that had conquered his once good sense, and he found his captured state pleasantly humorous, as if he were judging someone else. Mike even convinced himself that no one knew. They were careful to the extreme, and they thought that was enough to contain secrecy. But passion was not easily suppressed, and people at work said he'd changed, that something was different. He told them he'd been working out more. His days were filled with memories of Catherine's touch and feelings, feelings that brought longing and joy. Not often, and usually when he was exhausted, a cloud of sourceless apprehension, an embryonic dread descended on him for no reason. He ignored those times as best he could, and he thanked God daily for his gift of love that he had never known before. Michael, in accordance with OR committee restrictions, continued to assign surgeons to cover Clayton in surgery. Mike was in a hallway going to a clinic when a resident ran up to him. Emergency, the resident said. OR, Mike asked. The resident nodded. Abdominal aorta, Otherson. That was damn near impossible. God damn it. He took the stairs, and within minutes he entered room 12. All the staff was silent and motionless as a snapshot. Only Paul Smythe, the anesthesiologist, looked at him. Paul handed Mike the dead patient's chart. Mike checked the unfamiliar name. Clayton was sitting on the floor, his knees up, his back against the wall, still gowned and gloved. 
Mike could not bring himself to help Clayton, who would resent the attempt. Mike turned to the staff to begin to clear the room and document everything they had seen or heard. Within 24 hours, Mike knew the death was avoidable. Clayton had been operating without his assigned supervision, against the rules of probation, and posting his case under Mike's name as assistant mentor without his knowledge. The hospital administrator gathered a quorum of the OR committee. Two hours later, Clayton was suspended indefinitely. Clayton was finished as an operating surgeon. The only question was if he would lose his license to practice medicine. The State Board of Medical Examiners would decide that, and members of the committee openly wondered what had happened to Clayton, amazed that a man so prominent could fall so far. Mike went to Clayton's office. Clayton was alone. The committee has taken away privileges, Mike said. Make you happy, Clayton asked. I wish it hadn't happened, Mike said. I know about Catherine, Clayton said. Mike swallowed involuntarily. You think you love Catherine, but you don't know love, Michael. You don't know about caring and sacrifice, about tolerance and forgiveness, and you can't ever know what she means to me. Clayton leaned forward. I'm not impaired, Michael. God knows. I've had bad luck. Can you deny that every surgeon has some bad luck in his career? But if I were impaired, do you think having my partner screw my wife might put a little stress on me? That's got nothing to do with the privileges, Mike said. He looked at Clayton for anger, but Clayton seemed strangely resigned, as if he really believed fate was methodically working against him. It's got everything to do with it, Michael. You didn't have to destroy me, Clayton said. That's not the way it happened, Clayton, Mike said. I would have given her to you, Clayton said. This committee had no other choice. This was about operating competence. You didn't follow the rules. Go to her. Gloat together. I'll work on my life. I'll have plenty of time. There are two separate issues here, Clayton. Bullshit. Two issues. But they've never been separate. Clayton stood up, his hands on his desk, leaning forward. After all I've done for you, Clayton said. Mike looked away. I've never been against you, Clayton. Rest your case with God, my friend, Clayton said, and may you rot in hell. For weeks, Catherine could not get away from the house. Clayton had become irrational. Once, he slapped Melissa. For the most part, he stayed locked in his den. He slept there in his underwear on a sofa. He no longer ate meals with the family and ordered takeout food delivered. Catherine was afraid to leave, both for Melissa's protection and Clayton's safety. But she had also consulted with a lawyer who said, in her best interest, and Melissa's, she could not leave voluntarily, and she should not have any hint, much less evidence, that she was having an adulterous affair. It would diminish her legal claims considerably. He said she should consider herself warned. Chapter 20 A week passed. Mike was on in-house call on a busy night. At 3 o'clock a.m., he received a page from the operator that a woman wanted to see him. 
The operator didn't know who it was. Mike heard her ask on another line. A friend, the operator said. Catherine sat in the lobby on one of the sofas with ripped upholstery, her head in her hands. She stood as Mike approached. Her tired eyes avoided direct contact. Her hands fidgeted, twirled her car keys on her finger. The side room off the lobby where machines for snacks and drinks lined the wall had three vacant tables with chairs. Mike brought her coffee out of the machine, and they sat opposite at a small table. Clayton will be back to work, she said. He's suing the hospital, the state, and maybe even you. He claims restraint of trade, defamation of character. He thinks he can get the court to somehow reinstate him until there is legal resolution. He plans to show up at work, demand a paycheck, and if they don't allow him to operate, it will prove that there's a conspiracy against him. Mike had expected Clayton to fight back. He trusted every word Catherine said. He can't succeed, Mike said. Oh, yes, he can, Catherine said. He has enough money, and by using the political connections that my father gave him over the years, he's determined to make it work. A facial twitch closed her right eye with irregular spasms. I've been driving around for hours. I'm going to Mother's. I came to tell you. Catherine looked defeated and exhausted. He knew Clayton could do that to a woman. Clayton was not easy to change, especially when he was wrong. And he was mean. What can I do, Mike asked. I can't stop thinking about you. I don't know what you can do. I just needed to let you know. What about Melissa, Mike asked. I'm sending her east, no matter what. Mother won't let her stay in her house. Mother has denied her own granddaughter, refused any support. I'll have to leave Melissa with Clayton for a few days. Catherine's eyes moved frequently, left and right, up and down. In the fluorescent lights, the beautiful brown of her irises seemed washed out. He'll never operate again, Catherine asked. He'll find something in medicine, Mike said. She turned her eyes away from him. He could not see her face. Come to my place, Mike said. I can't. I talked to my lawyer. He says I must never reveal any alienation of affection. I could lose everything. They'll argue that no matter what you say. Father depends on Clayton for finances. It's been that way for 20 years. He'll not be happy when I leave Clayton. We can still live together. Clayton won't support Melissa. He thinks she's useless. And he owes me a lot for all those years. I can't let that go. I'll wait until the settlement. An old woman and child walked hand in hand from the elevators to the front entrance. Catherine was crying. Mike looked around. A night employee came in, bought a soft drink, and sat at the table and opened a brown-bagged meal. Mike touched Catherine's arm and nodded to a darkened hallway. He faced her when they were out of sight, self-consciously holding back action to express the love he felt for her. Finally, he touched her, felt her trembling. I'll go to Mother's, she said. No one must know about us. 
leave when he's not there. He's always there, scheming revenge. Call me. As soon as I get out. I love you, he said. Oh, Michael, I wish this could have been easier. Catherine had not called Mike by 7 a.m. He had no messages on his cell phone or at home. She did not answer her cell phone. No one was picking up at the mansion. He drove uptown. Lights blazed in the windows downstairs and upstairs of the mansion. Catherine's car was in the drive. Clayton answered the ring. Mike! Mike looked over Clayton's shoulder into the kitchen. No Catherine. I've come to see if you're doing okay. It's been a while, Mike said. Clayton stared. It's early, but I'm glad you're here. I need to talk to you, he said. He moved outside, brushing against Michael, and closed the door. Catherine okay, Mike asked. Of course. I want this talk to be private, Clayton said. Clayton motioned for Mike to follow a few yards from the house. I wanted to thank you for what you did the first time in the OR committee. I know you did your best, Michael. I'm not after you, but I'm fighting back. I'm suing the hospital, the department, the state board, but I'm not going after you. I told the legal guys, no, you are my friend. Clayton's tone was controlled and flat. And I wanted to tell you that it's really been difficult with Catherine. Hard on her, I mean. She's on the verge of walking out on me. But we've worked it out. She's a great woman. An understanding wife. We've had a heart-to-heart. -heart. I wanted you to know. And she'll need the support of all her friends. Uh, that's, uh, that's great, Mike said. Melissa will be going away for school, Clayton said. She's back to almost healthy about her schooling now. I guess Catherine and I will have to be thinking about downsizing. This place is too big for the two of us. Catherine's face appeared in the kitchen window. She looked away. She did not seem in danger. What do you think about the hospital, Clayton asked. I'm sure all charges will be dropped soon. How's Melissa, Mike said. Like I said, going away to school, all decided. I mean now. Great, Clayton walked to the house and opened the door. He called out, Catherine, get Melissa. Say hi to Mike. Catherine stepped up. Her arm was around Melissa's shoulder, and she pushed her forward. See? Mike started forward to enter, but Clayton put his arm out. You go on, Clayton said. I want some production data from the OR. I've requested it. Could you be sure to send it on? Everything's all right, Mike asked. What would you expect, Michael? Clayton said. Catherine or Melissa made no signs of distress. Everything is just fine, Melissa called. Mike was too far away to know if her tone held nuances he needed to hear. Thanks for coming by, Catherine said. The door closed. Clayton shook Mike's hand. Let's get together for dinner sometime, Clayton went into the house. At home, Mike left his cell phone active. He was exhausted, but he couldn't sleep. By the time he left for work a few hours later, he still hadn't heard from Catherine, and she did not answer her phone. 
Finally, Catherine called the next day at the office. She was calling from a payphone. Clayton had taken her phone away. Oh, Michael, I'm so sorry, she said. It was a real surprise, Mike said. Clayton and I had this long argument. He threatened me. I thought you had decided. It's terrible. Melissa refuses to go to school away from New Orleans. She's got a boyfriend. Now Clayton's convinced she's not his daughter. He says she looks like a stranger. He says that when he proves it, he'll cut me off without a cent if I ever think about leaving him. That's crazy, Mike said. Of course. Come to the quarter, Mike said. I still have to be careful. My lawyers tell me to document he's crazy. I've got a little pocket recorder. I've got to build up my own case. Put this behind me. Even my lawyer says that. They say I shouldn't make any bad judgments now. To ride it out for a while until Melissa and I can set up a solid reason for leaving. The lawyer thinks I can lose everything. Call me if you need me, Mike said. I'm afraid, she said. I love you, he whispered. Chapter 21 Mike heard from Catherine later at work. She could no longer stand it, no matter what the consequences. She had gone to her mother's with Melissa, but her mother refused to have Melissa in the house. Catherine had gone back home. She couldn't leave Melissa alone with Clayton. Now she was trying to find some place to live. It had to be close to school and safe. Come to the quarter, Mike said again. Not yet. The lawyers... People will know soon enough, and we can manage. It's such a risk, Michael. You can't stay there much longer. I've got to think. I'll call you when it's safe. The lawyers say the phones are tapped to trap us. Mike came home after work at 6.30 the next day. Catherine paced in front of his place with Melissa, who sat with five large suitcases, her back against the front door of his house. I got away as soon as I could, Mike said. He unlocked the door and carried in the baggage. Melissa looked around. You'll be on the sofa here, Mike said. We can find someplace better for you on the weekend. He emptied two drawers and a dresser and took some clothes out of the closet. Use that for now. He could store some of his stuff overhead in the rented garage. Catherine unpacked and got a glass from a cabinet for her toothbrush in the bathroom. Melissa could use the kitchenette sink. Melissa stacked her clothes at the end of the sofa in the living room. Catherine seemed relieved, but Melissa's face was as blank as a dense fog with no wind. By the end of the week, they developed a sort of routine. Catherine bought Mardi Gras decorations at Walgreens and decorated inside and out. She drove Melissa to school every weekday morning. Then she spent most of her day at her lawyer's offices. Most afternoons, Melissa took the St. Charles trolley and walked home from Canal Street. Catherine bought plants, and Mike sat in the bathroom next to a two-foot repotted cactus and woke up to his favorite view of the sky through the French door windows now partially obscured by a sprawling fern. At first, when Melissa and Catherine argued, he spent an unnecessary night in the hospital in the on-call room. But he missed his house and the two of them. 
and he sat them down and insisted no disputes. They were angry, but sheepish, too, and they were civil to each other when he was around, although he sensed tension between them remained, mostly over going away to school. Catherine found a special smile that she flashed more frequently now. It was being away from Clayton. We couldn't have survived without you, Catherine said to Mike one night before they went to sleep. Catherine's work against Clayton was still intense, but not all-consuming. Moods of frustrating indecision and irrational outburst over Clayton erupted at times. During those times, Mike told Melissa to understand, and he was surprised that together they could work occasionally to reverse Catherine's pains. Chapter 22 Mike and Catherine awoke after eight on a Saturday. Melissa always slept late when she could. She could fall into a deep sleep in seconds and would sleep for centuries if not awakened, twisting and turning and mouthing unknowable words from her dreams. Mike got hot dogs to go and beers and sodas from a grocery on Esplanade, and they had a late breakfast early lunch. Now, Catherine had gone to care for plants in the solarium at the mansion when Clayton was gone from the house. She said the visit was to erase any doubt that the house was still half hers. But she really needed to get out of the quarter for a while, something all of them silently agreed each of them needed at times. Mike read journals as Melissa practiced a new pose for her French Quarter street mime act, where she was standing straight with arms out in front, dressed like Nefertiti with copper-colored skin and an Egyptian headdress. She looked ready for the tomb journey to the next life. She'd made a small gold-painted platform, two feet square and two feet high, and she'd propped hand mirrors on a counter edge near the sink to check the effect. Catherine had never seen Melissa as a finished product. Catherine had discouraged Melissa's costume work as unfit for a young lady. With Catherine gone, Melissa now worked without inhibition. Her pleasure radiated so strongly Mike smiled. The act was in three sections. Suspension, action, suspension. Mike watched with growing fascination. At first, Melissa stood rigid for up to two minutes, then kicked out with one leg and balanced on one foot for maybe a minute. She explained when Mike stared that her boyfriend had a dog costume. When she was in a regal, immobile pose, he came by on all fours and raised his leg as if to dog pee, and then she kicked out, half knocking him over, and then they went into this new suspended pose of him pushed back on one hand and one foot and her about to fall over to the side, a sort of frozen catastrophe. From the way she described it, it could be very funny, primarily because she would be so elegant and formal, almost Egyptian divine in her costume, and then turn into a sort of Charlie Chaplin slice-of-life action pose of entanglement with a bladder-filled scruffy dog. Melissa told Mike that the pose with both of them half falling over was not easy, and they had worked it so her foot was anchored in a hidden hand-sewn cloth costume brace. Once her foot was anchored, the addition of his hand and foot on the ground formed a two-person triangle so they could balance motionless for up to two minutes before crumbling into a heap and passing the can for contributions. She held the pose twelve times, working for over an hour. 
Then she opened a beer from the fridge. Don't tell Mother, Melissa said. And she brought one for Mike. She sat on the couch, her bed at night, her legs sprawled out in front of her. You don't seem to hate us being here as much as I would, Melissa said to Mike. It was true. Mike didn't really mind. He had discovered that Melissa was always thinking, always moving, always questioning. He liked her unhindered vitality that she hid so effectively around her parents, and he began to think he wanted children of his own with Catherine, to grow and learn and be loved. He smiled. It was the first time he ever had such a thought. Mike leaned back in his chair. Remember that time on Grand Isle when I brought you back to New Orleans? Melissa nodded. I misjudged you, Mike said. What's to misjudge? I thought you were a spoiled brat. Melissa looked at him. I am spoiled and a brat. Not true, Mike said. Just wait till you get to know me better. Melissa swirled the beer in the can with her arm extended. She took a swig. My therapist says, she continued, I act out to get attention. It's part of my developmental phase that's too strong, and I'm not to blame. You seem normal to me, Mike said. Suddenly she jumped up. She said she had to go. Got a date, he asked. She packed up her mime stuff, picked up a key to the apartment, and was off to meet her boyfriend. Stay cool, she said as she left. Within the hour, Catherine came back. You two have a nice day, Catherine asked. Mike went to late mass alone the next morning. As he came out of the cathedral, he saw Melissa and her boyfriend in costumes working the crowd with Nefertiti in the dog bed. The act was innovative and polished. Their collection can was filled with bills. Mike added a 20 so Melissa could see, and he looked to her face, but she didn't break her pose. She didn't blink either. She used some eye ointment to keep the pain of a drying, blinkless eye from spoiling the effect of suspended animation. When Mike was at work, Catherine was still lining up potential witnesses for the divorce or meeting with lawyers. Now he was glad Melissa still refused to go east to school. She was going to school regularly in New Orleans. Her grades were borderline average for the last two years, but she started studying working at the kitchen table some nights at 10 or 11 o'clock when he arrived from the hospital. She was determined to erase any excuse to dismiss her and send her east. She was on her way to honor roll. Catherine went to join her parents at the club in Metairie one Sunday morning for brunch. It had been a family tradition that had become irregular over the past few years. Melissa didn't like her grandparents, so she stayed home and she joined Mike for Mass at the cathedral. You like the Mass? Mike asked as they walked out. I don't like when the priest wants God to punish us for not making contributions, Melissa said. They walked around Jackson Square and picked up a double order of beignets. Mike had a coffee and brought hot chocolate for Melissa at the to-go window on the back side. They climbed the steps onto the levee and found an empty bench with a view of the river. A massive bulk carrier going downstream passed a string of barges going upstream, and they watched together. 
Mike loved the river. It never lost the power to attract his gaze for hours, like the magnetism of flames in a log fire. He tore open the beignet's bag and brushed powdered sugar from his pants. School going okay, he asked. I just want to graduate here, not in New York, Melissa looked at him. Do you ever see your father, she asked. She put her chocolate cup down and ran her fingers through her hair. Her eyes squeezed shut for a few seconds. Then she broke off a corner of one of the beignets and let her tongue pick up the sugar before she put it in her mouth. I don't know my father, Mike said. He left my mother when she was 17 and pregnant with me. She never speaks about him. Don't you want to know sometimes? Sometimes. But for the most part, I live with the fantasy that he was a plantation owner, both rich and handsome, Mike said. He probably wrestled alligators at some roadside reptile farm in Alabama. I would have done better without a father. He's come to hate me, Melissa said. He doesn't hate you, Mike said. Mom fights with Dad. He calls her a whore. He says she's never turned down a guy. Then he says I'm no different because I have a boyfriend. Melissa was holding her hot chocolate cup in both hands now and leaning forward with her elbows on her knees. The arguments had been a part of her life for so long she seemed fatalistic about it. She was staring blankly out toward the river. You've done a great job finding yourself these last few months, Mike said. Swallows darted along a path in front of them, pecking for crumbs. I could have used a father who cared, Melissa said. He said kind things to me about you, Mike said. You must have had good times. When I was younger, she said. He wasn't around after that? That was part of it. And I don't think he and Mother were getting along well even then. What would you have wanted him to do, Mike asked. To point the way and say I was doing a good job, she said. Mike watched a pushboat maneuver a string of stone-loaded barges around the Algiers Point going downstream. For a while, Mom thought I was pregnant, Melissa said. I missed a few periods. Dad said he would disown me. What happened to the baby, Mike asked. The tests were negative. It took a long time for Mom to get over it. She was absolutely sure I was doing sex or drugs or something. Mike sipped coffee and stared across the river to Algiers. Melissa paused with her thoughts, fidgeting with the silver rings on three fingers of her right hand. Mother sent me to a therapist, she said. I was always wrong. It took me a long time to get it worked out. A flock of birds rose, in perfect unity, from the top of a grain barge like a blanket held on both ends and slowly rolled to air out. Even now I don't feel good about it, Melissa said, about how no one believed in me. You seem to have worked through it, though, Mike said. They sat in silence. The barge with the covering of birds slipped into the shadow of the bridge upstream. Melissa put her empty cup down. Maybe we should start back, she said. At the apartment, Melissa did her homework at the kitchen table. 
Mike sat in an easy chair trying to read, but he couldn't forget Melissa's words. When Catherine returned from the club in Metairie, she went straight to the bedroom. No one spoke. Mike went into the bedroom and closed the door. Catherine lay on her side on the bed, awake but silent. Melissa's here, Mike whispered to Catherine to keep Melissa from hearing. She needs to know that you love her. Catherine turned. I made a mistake about the pregnancy. She was going through bad growing pains, a lot of stress, Catherine said. You don't still blame her, do you? No, Catherine said softly. I mean, it's always there. Something happens in life, it doesn't go away. I've told her over and over I was sorry. I think it was too hurtful to forgive. I misjudge her, Mike said. You've done a lot for us, Catherine said. We're doing better. She doesn't want to go away to school, Mike said. They were about to expel her based on her past behavior. I want better for her, and Clayton could afford it. She's a good kid, Mike said. I don't mind if she stays. Catherine looked away. I'm afraid if she stays, she'll go bad. She's angry all the time. This prep school is famous for discipline. She can find herself. And get away from her boyfriend, Mike asked. Catherine looked at Mike for a minute. That too, she said. Mike spent the entire next weekend on call at the hospital. Catherine called him at work. Melissa refused to leave for school. She had her bag packed, the ticket ready, and she refused to go. Mike got back to the house Sunday night just after 9 p.m. The door was unlocked. Catherine sat at the kitchen table in a sports bra and workout pants, her bare feet planted on the floor. An open bottle of wine and an empty glass sat on the table. It's a disaster, Catherine said. Mike moved to stand Catherine up, hold her, but she pushed him away. Where's Melissa, Mike asked. I lost my temper, Catherine said. What's happened, Mike said. He took the other chair and sat across from her, leaving his briefcase by the door. She will not listen, Catherine said. It's the boy. Mike stood and opened the bedroom door. Melissa sat on the bed holding a washcloth to her face. She didn't look up. He closed the door. Are you hurt, Mike asked. Mike moved the face cloth. Her forehead and temple were swollen and blue. She had a half-inch cut above her left eye that oozed blood. He led her to the bathroom, sat her on a closed-lid toilet, and found adhesive strip to approximate the wound edges, and then, with gauze, he made a makeshift pressure patch. What happened, he asked. He closed the door and spoke softly for some sense of privacy. She would not look at him. Melissa, talk to me, he said. A tear welled up in her right eye. We are living in a cramped three-room house, he said. We can't make it if you won't talk. She glanced briefly and looked away. Are you hungry, he asked. She shook her head no. You are hungry. He took her arm to get her to stand. We're going to get something to eat, he said. I don't want to. We're going to get something to eat, he said in her ear. He guided Melissa by Catherine. 
Don't go, Catherine said. We'll be back, Mike said. I have my cell phone. Call me if you need me. Catherine moved to the bedroom, taking a full glass of wine with her. He'd never seen her take more than a few sips of wine in an entire evening. Melissa and Mike walked towards Charters to a poor boy burger place. Mike found a booth near the back, away from loudspeakers and with dividers on each side, so he and Melissa were hidden. He ordered a grilled cheese sandwich for her, an oyster poor boy for him. They sat. Mike didn't say anything for a few minutes. Melissa looked straight into the narrow wooden table between them. She cried silently only once. When their food came, he began to eat. She didn't touch her food, her hands in her lap below the table. It's terrible to feel so bad, Mike said. What can I do? She looked at him before she spoke. I hate it here. But you refuse to leave, he asked. Mike sipped a beer and waited. I'm not a whore, she said. I have sex. I'm not a whore. Your mother gets upset when she doesn't know where you are. Why don't you just tell her? Melissa closed her eyes. I've got a new life. I don't want my parents screwing it up. Is it the boy in the act? Mike tried to look interested and disinterested at the same time. He's a senior, she said. Mike paused. Why not just tell your mother? Bring him by. She'd go ballistic, Melissa said. You like him? She might, too. I love him. He loves me. But he's Jewish, she said. Don't tell her that. Well, he looks Jewish. If he's old New Orleans, Mike said, maybe it wouldn't make any difference. His parents were from Cleveland, she said. They live in Philadelphia now. He's staying with his aunt and uncle in Slidell so he can finish school. He wants to be an architect. Mike thought about that for a while. Is it the real thing for you guys? He's kind, she said. He's got a part-time job constructing floats at Mardi Gras World. I help him. Somehow you've got to let your mother know, Mike said. She wouldn't do it on purpose, but she'd ruin us. Melissa stared down, her shoulders slumped. Your mother wants you to be happy, Mike said. I know that for sure. My mother has lived without love for so long, until you. She thinks old. Mike ordered coffee. Melissa declined. After the waiter returned, she leaned forward, both arms on the table. I'm spending the night out, she said. You've got a place, Mike asked. She hesitated. He's got a friend who has a two-bedroom apartment. His friend travels. For a few minutes, neither of them had any more talk. Finally, he began. You know what we were talking about by the river, the pregnancy, when you were younger? Your mother loves you. She just didn't know how to handle it. Mike paused. Your mother needs you. She needs your forgiveness. She's had that, Melissa said. She just can't accept it. Melissa's boyfriend was at the door. She stood up. The strong light above and outside the door made his face a shadow. He did not come in. 
What should I tell your mother? Mike asked. Tell her I love her, Melissa said. Mike put cash on the table. He stood and paused, watching Melissa walk to the door. Then he hurried to catch up. Melissa hugged a dark-haired, wiry young man just a few inches taller than she. He could see the boy's eyes, intense, but grateful for her affection, too. Mike grabbed the boy's arm, separating him from Melissa. The boy tried to twist away, but Mike gripped him firmly, staring down into his puzzled eyes. The boy was not afraid. What's your intention, Mike said angrily. What exactly are your plans for this girl? Don't, Melissa said. This isn't right, Melissa. This running off, spending nights together without your parents knowing where you are. It's none of your business, the boy said. Your mother should know, Mike said to Melissa. You're not my father, she said. She was crying. He let go of the boy's arm. The boy looked to Melissa with concern and took her in his arms. Mike backed away. I'm all right, Melissa said to the boy. The boy glared at Mike. The two left hand in hand and disappeared into the darkness of an alley a few yards away. Mike stood motionless until a large man bumped into him, knocking him off balance for a second. Sorry, sure, the man said with slurred speech, smiling lopsidedly. Mike shrugged. Catherine was asleep when Mike returned, and she didn't wake when he got in bed beside her. The faint scent of wine hovered over them. In the middle of the night, Catherine poked Mike. Where's Melissa? She's spending the night out, Mike said. You let her go, Catherine asked. More I didn't stop her, Mike said. Catherine fell asleep, turning over and talking in her dreams. Three days later, Mike had been home from work for an hour when Catherine returned to the apartment. She had been at her lawyer's for most of the afternoon. Melissa did not come home after school. Catherine searched the apartment for a note. She's gone, Catherine said to Mike. I doubt that, Mike said. I know it, Michael. She should be home by now. She's probably still at school. She's not. I went by there. It's my afternoon to pick her up. Mike stood and led Catherine to the bedroom. He pulled out his suitcase from under the bed. He took out his travel bag and looked in a slot in his toilet kit. Her money's gone, he said. She hid money from me, Catherine asked. I gave her a safe place to keep it, he said. She made it on her own. Mike took out a folded note from where Melissa's money had been. It was addressed to Mom. He handed it to Catherine. She's all right, Catherine said. She has a plan. She doesn't want to go away to school. She handed the note to Michael. She said she loves us. It's the boy she doesn't want to leave. Catherine sat at the kitchen table and put her head down. It's my fault. I lost my temper. No one's at fault, Mike said. I hit her, Catherine said. I've never done anything like that. And now, at the worst time... Mike took Catherine's shoulders, rubbed the tense muscles in her back. She'll be just fine. There is no one more competent to manage her life than your daughter. Catherine got up to empty the dishwasher. 
She scrubbed the sink with abrasive cleanser. Come to bed, Mike finally said. She's just a child, Catherine said. She's an adult with smarts and lots of common sense, like her mother. I don't like her running off, Catherine said. Chapter 23 With the mansion in town sold, the house on Grand Isle felt like exile to Clayton. His idle days agitated him. His surgical skills were slipping away, too, like an iceberg melting in the sun. He tried to read journals but couldn't concentrate. He did not play sports, but he'd taken up doing long walks on the beach. Two days a week, he made trips to his lawyer in New Orleans where they devised strategies. Two investigators now followed Mike and Catherine and searched for evidence that could keep Catherine from getting a penny. And he wasn't giving anything to Melissa as long as he was alive. Catherine had left, and that was her mistake. And he had kicked Melissa out. The lawyers were shaping up an alienation of affection as a scare tactic, mainly. Christ, anyone could alienate anyone in Louisiana. But they were looking at suing Mike for personal wrong, some vindictive restraint of trade, if they could get that to work. In his mind, he wanted to see Catherine wandering in the quarter, her lover gone, her speech incoherent, wax in her ears and hair under her arms, her toes poking through discarded tennis shoes fished out of a dumpster. The walking dead. That was his fantasy, and it drove him to look forward to the lawyers' meetings and to prod them to look in every crevice for smoking guns. Although restricted from practice in Louisiana until a decision by the state board, Clayton still had licenses in Mississippi and Alabama. He called a friend he'd known since medical school for a weekend of fishing on the Gulf. With the greatest care, he tiptoed into the subject of hospital-based practice near Columbus, Mississippi. Was there a need? Well, damn if there wasn't. Was there some place he could see patients? Well, yes. At the office? Sure. Was there a need for bariatrics? Well, there was the highest obesity in the region. Who cared if the populace fattened up on eating squirrels and possum instead of caviar and duck confit? Clayton started on a Monday at 9 a.m. He spent Sunday night in a motel in Meridian. The drive from Grand Isle was more than seven hours. He saw patients in the office alone and he missed the bustle of the hospital clinic serving three or four doctors simultaneously. In two weeks, he booked his first surgeries. He lived in a motel when he was working and returned to Grand Isle for the weekends now. He was unhappy from the start, irritable with patients and staff. He felt diminished. He was a famous surgeon reduced to a country doctor. The obscurity oppressed him. He quit 41 days after he started. A nurse had called to book a bariatric case. She came to him as he walked out of a patient room. They won't let me book any more surgeries. Your privileges are resented. Clayton went directly to the CEO of the hospital. What's going on, he demanded. The CEO had expected his visit. The CEO passed over paperwork without comment. The state board had published Clayton's license status and it was now also on a national database. We just found out, the CEO said. 
and you signed a statement saying you had never been denied a license. It's under review. I was never denied, Clayton said. These are delicate times, the CEO said. I'm sorry. Screw it, Clayton thought. He didn't like this low life, and he didn't like the town. He didn't like Mississippi. He left with patients still waiting in the office. His former friend who owned the practice didn't call him, and Clayton never tried to call his friend either. Clayton was through with surgery, and it didn't make a damn what his friend or anyone thought. Back on Grand Isle permanently now, he was alone except for chance with a waitress at the diner. He was bored. Television news agitated him, and he refused to watch the world deteriorate. Reruns of classic LSU football games entertained him for a few weeks. Then he watched other SEC teams, but soon he routinely fell asleep before the end of the first quarter. He bathed infrequently, usually walking into the gulf in his shorts and then hosing off the side of the house and sitting in a lawn chair to dry. He enjoyed his drinks, but worried he'd sink into some alcohol dungeon without a way out, so he paced himself on most days, leaving at least three hours between drinks until the sunset. In his isolation, he was pressed with unfulfillment, and he became obsessed with telling a story. He didn't type, but he wanted to write, to say things that needed to be said. He would do his memoir. He worried that dictating for transcription would assure mediocrity. He stocked up on legal pants with pencils and erasers. He'd do better by hand, more intimate. Precipitously, he worked on an outline. He blocked a 1,200-page work with 48 chapters. He looked to the first 20, at least, to explore the Otherson family history. Later sections would deal with career and personal development. Then he labored to title each chapter before he started. He couldn't wait to get started, and he gave up on the titles for the chapters. That would come later. He started on Chapter 38. He labeled it Catherine Hebert, My Loving Wife. He used all capitals for My Loving Wife for sarcasm. He started. My mother, Beulah Rebenach Cox Otherson, discovered Catherine Hebert among the debutantes that infiltrated every gathering of more than six people in New Orleans. Catherine was my queen when I was king of Rex. I'd never seen Catherine before then. I knew her father, Gabe. He held state office and was the governor's top advisor and remained in that position for many years. After Catherine was queen, Gabe used my money for lucrative oil and real estate deals that would over the years give me, and I presume equal dollar to him, ten to twenty times the investment. Shrewd Gabe used my money well. I never had major cause to complain at the time, but now I suspect he cheated me whenever he could. I must say that Iris, Catherine's mother, was already a top hostess in New Orleans when I met Catherine, but she came from low-class origins. Gabe married her just after she graduated from high school in St. Bernard Parish. Did she love him? I doubt it. For her, it was a miraculous opportunity to emerge from obscure poverty to the top of New Orleans society. Gabe paid for every step of her transition to the top. She became polished and memorable. But as many did, 
I thought her a little tacky. As Catherine matured, she was living evidence of Iris's climb to power, the recipient of all Iris had learned as Gabe's Pygmalion. Catherine dropped out of her fourth year at Sophie Newcomb when we married. I gave Iris a blank signed check for the ceremony and the reception. Although they devoted their lives to appear wealthy, it was a sham that everyone with substantive money knew well. Both Gabe and I added hundreds of names to the invitation list, but he never paid a cent. Catherine, in her wedding gown, had a quirky beauty. Her black hair, her brown eyes, and her pert figure did not fit the mold of most New Orleans beauties who tended toward curvaceous, blonde, and ample at the time. But indeed, she duly impressed every male and female with her sharp intelligence and witty remarks. She was, for me, decidedly well-chosen. She would carry on the Otherson tradition of exclusive achievement I had always wanted. When Catherine became pregnant, she was unresponsive, fearing harm to the baby. And after birth, she suffered what I must believe now we call postpartum depression. When we returned to my family home after her illness, she established her own room separate from the master bedroom, and she came to me occasionally when I called. I must confess, dear reader, that my objectivity here is a struggle. At the time of this writing, this dear specimen of a wife has left me for no reason other than her own incredible selfish needs. She cavorted with my junior partner. As you will understand, my emotions are like rats in a drum cage. But I must not digress. You can see how hard it is to tell my story when my thoughts are sometimes not my own. But back to Catherine. I must say she was tenacious. Once she started something, she bit into it like a gila monster. That may have been a good trait for her, but I think it made her a lousy mother. By the time she came to deal with her child, I say her child because I've come to serious doubts about whose sperm fertilized her womb. She does now, after all, seem willing to accept anyone, even someone as outrageously inappropriate as my friend, my partner, and my former student. What profession other than surgery demands so much trust, I ask you? But that is history now. Catherine seemed to expend all her tenacity before she got to raising her daughter, Melissa. As I say, sometimes I doubt Melissa's mine. She has few, if any, Otherson characteristics. She is a bright child, or at least clever, but headstrong. Melissa was not born to function in a civilized society, and she was unable to listen to any direction that I might suggest to make her life productive. And all the while, Catherine was permissive, permissive, permissive. She came to suspect a pregnancy in Melissa, never proven, but still, Catherine perceived a breach in her motherhood skills. Melissa became a constant worry to me, and I never could predict what unacceptable affront she would do next. I will not repeat the wrongs done me here, but you will be able to read those roughly in the chapters on Beach Time and how education energized the Othersons. It is enough to know Catherine and Melissa did not get along well, and that my life became a purgatory from the contrived content of a happy family. At this point, Clayton fell asleep. Chapter 24 
Catherine's mother, Iris, had a stroke three months after Melissa's disappearance. For days, Catherine never left her parents' house in the Lake District, refusing to leave her mother for more than a few minutes. As she realized there was no one to care for Iris, she began removing her things out of Mike's house in the quarter. She expected a prolonged stay with Iris. A second stroke came two weeks later. Catherine found her mother crumpled on the floor at the foot of the open arm staircase that led to the second floor. At the landing at the top of the stairs was a full-length oil portrait of her mother in a white ball gown from the 50s, petite and beautiful, proud and defiant in her opulence. Now her mother's face was dotted with capillary clusters and brown liver spots on jaundiced yellow skin. She had lived herself into this pre-death purgatory of smoker's cough, high blood pressure headaches and creaking joints, always believing she was above succumbing to the ravages of success. Catherine screamed for the maid to get an ambulance. She knelt on the floor, wiped the spittle from her mother's face with the hem of her skirt, and then sat supporting her mother's head in her arm. She touched her mother's closed eyelids with her free hand traced her mother's lips with her forefinger, and cried silently. Iris deteriorated when she returned from a four-day stay in the hospital. Catherine felt the constraint of a sick parent. She feared the guilt of not doing enough. She blamed herself for not preventing Iris's illness. Instinctively, Catherine enslaved herself in excess of care that might minimize her self-condemnation. Her mother refused to participate in the prescribed rehabilitation. When she did make the effort to walk, she dragged her right leg and her right hand hung down, claw-like. Catherine had set up a bedroom on the ground floor as her mother's room and had hired two staff to be present 24 hours a day. Soon her mother could not make the effort to walk, and she spent most of her time in bed. As Iris became almost totally bedridden, she had periods of incoherence when she seemed to retreat into her head to live with good or bad memories that possessed her from the past and those that she made up. Catherine knew Iris could not live alone. Iris did not seem suicidal, but she was prone to accidents when she was living in a safe world that didn't match the real world with its dangers. Gabe lived in Baton Rouge now. A campaign was looming, and his influence in politics had always made him impressive salaries during the campaigns. But now, administrations had changed, and he was rarely consulted. On a Thursday night, he stopped by the house. He no longer talked to Iris and almost never looked in on her. Gabe took Catherine outside to assure privacy. With Clayton's medical problems, and now with the separation from Catherine, Clayton was consolidating his finances, and Clayton was excluding the intricate ventures Gabe had created with his resources over the past 20 years. Gabe had built his financial empire in what he thought was a hard-money resource, Clayton. It was in the family. Catherine could see fear in Gabe's eyes for the first time ever she could remember. We've got nothing, Gabe said. Don't expect any more support. What about mother? Catherine asked. You take care of her. On what? Medicare, insurance. It won't last forever. Work it out. 
What about you? There's an election coming up. I'll be in Baton Rouge, but don't expect a miracle. Catherine stepped back from her father as if he smelled bad. She had difficulty finding words. We could sell the house, she said. There's a second mortgage and the market is bad, Gabe said. I had mortgage insurance until last year. The house may go. I've got less than $10,000 in my account, Catherine said. The divorce will take a year, maybe more. Can we sell the cars? You were crazy to leave Clayton, Gabe said. Catherine's anger flared. She had a right to flee her misery. Clayton's taken back everything, Gabe said. We were living off those investments. Can't you talk to him, she asked. I just did. He won't reason. He hates you. You've ruined his career. Humiliated him by screwing his partner. It wasn't like that, she said. You're pathetic, Gabe said. She had never allowed herself to admit his cruelty. He was her father, but as it became clear to her how little he cared, she felt alone and threatened. Mother needs you, she began. Sell the artwork. Try Morton's. That will take months, Catherine said. Ask your boyfriend. He's got nothing, no family money. His mother worked as a medium in Jackson Square. Tell her to conjure up a little extra for you, Gabe laughed. I could never ask him, she said. Afraid he'll dump you? That seemed so unfair to Catherine. But she was not ready to test Mike by asking him to help support Melissa's life and her mother's deteriorating health. Catherine would not let money erode their love. I've got an annuity I'll transfer, she said, but it won't last for long. Gabe did not return after that. Catherine sold what she could. She dismissed the yard man and the weekly maid, who were all that was left. She let the automobiles on lease be repossessed. The artwork was put into sales, but return was not close to the potential value when you had no other choices. She paid a little on the house mortgages when she was threatened and negotiated with the bank to postpone payments. But she knew the reality of an eventual eviction. Chapter 25 After Mardi Gras, Catherine made special arrangements for a neighbor to sit with Iris and went to her regular monthly board meeting of the Historical Society. She enjoyed the work, and the accomplishment her position represented. As the meeting progressed, the book that she had written and supervised on the illustrations was in galley and ready for the board's update on the progress. Her name had been removed as author. Instead, credit was given to the board. She dared not look up when she saw it, knowing 14 board members in the room had known everyone but her. She passed the galley to the next person, as the president continued discussion on architectural review plans for the Ninth Ward. When she had seen the galley, the president asked for a vote of acceptance. Catherine refused to respond to a call for unanimous approval by voice consent. The final item on the agenda was voting on new board member approval and approval of new terms for existing board members, usually routine since the number of four-year terms was not limited. A new member was approved. 
Then she and Phyllis Parnell, the two board members for re-election, were asked to leave the room. Outside the closed door, Catherine and Phyllis waited. It was taking longer than they expected. My name was taken off the book, Phyllis, Catherine said. Did you know about this? The president called everyone but me. I didn't think it was right, Catherine. I thought she should have talked to you. Why did she do it? I did the work. I'm the author. It was concern about sales, Phyllis said. They thought negative reaction to your divorce. Um, what has that to do with the board, Catherine asked. There was bad feeling about your moving in with the doctor. Clayton has deep roots, Phyllis said. I'm no less competent as a board member, Catherine responded. I think you made a mistake, Catherine. I'm sorry, Phyllis said. The president came. With a nod of her head, she indicated the vote was complete. Phyllis went in, but the president blocked Catherine when she began to follow. The president closed the door and took her aside. I'm sorry, Catherine. Your term was not renewed, the president said. It was a routine appointment, Catherine said. The discussions remain confidential, but I can tell you everyone honored your contributions. The president was not looking at her. Then why not keep me on, Catherine said. Time for new blood, new ideas. Phyllis has been on a lot longer than I have, Catherine said. The president backed away. The vote is final, Catherine, and almost unanimous, she said angrily, and there is no further discussion. It's not fair, Catherine said. It's what's best for the board and the society, the president said. The president returned to the meeting, closing the door. Catherine could not move. Although she stood alone in the hall and she tried not to succumb to her disappointment, she cried. She went from the historical society to a previously scheduled meeting at her lawyer's office. I was fired, she said. Just not reappointed, he corrected. He seemed to understand why she would feel rejected, but there was no legal action indicated. She must understand. He turned to more important issues of the divorce. She needed the testimonial of Melissa. They were still in discovery, but a trial date could be set soon. Catherine's case would be strengthened. No, her case might be saved by the willingness of Melissa to testify about her home situation. It was the only way to counter her leaving Clayton for adulterous reasons. We haven't heard a word from her, Catherine said. She doesn't want to be found. The lawyer said he had a good investigator he could retain, A.T. Thibodeau. He could send him by tomorrow to get started tracking her down. It could take weeks. Catherine thought it useless. Melissa was not in or around New Orleans, she was sure, and she was too smart to be easily tracked down. They had tried for months. But finally she agreed. She was afraid to ask the cost. The cost of everything had become important to her for the first time in her life. It was embarrassing. The first and third installments of The Surgeon's Wife are available on podcast number 19 and number 21. 
The Surgeon's Wife is also available in print and online at Amazon, Kindle, Barnes & Noble, Smashwords, and selected bookstores. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. This podcast is a production of StoryInLiteraryFiction.com.